This morning we'll be spending some time in the beloved book of Leviticus. It's your favorite. Be honest, it's your favorite. As we continue our series today called Misquoted, we have been spending some time talking about things that are not in the Bible. There's a lot of things that are said, a lot of quotes out there that we might think are in the Bible. And so we have committed this year to listening for the voice of God and listening well. And in particular, we want to listen to God's voice in the Bible. And so we want to get it right. We don't want to make assumptions about what's in there and what's not. We want to know what we're talking about. And so uh, each and every week I've been giving you a listening to the Bible tip of the week. And the tip of the week is this. You need to consider the culture. Consider the culture. See, oftentimes we read this Bible and we think, man, this Bible, it's like, it's like written for us in our day and age. And that is not true. It was written a long, long time ago. Very different culture, very different time, very different practices. Um, and because of that, we have to read it through the lenses of that culture. We have to be very careful not to impose our Western views and our Western ways upon the text here that was written for specific people in a specific time in a specific culture. Now, that doesn't change truth, capital T, but it does change how we look at things. Let me just give you a plausible example. Today, there is a game going on, right? There's a very large game called the Super Bowl, and they will play that in a massive, massive stadium. But 2,000 years from now, right? The world's still around 2,000 years from now. There is a chance that people will not be playing football anymore, There's a chance, right? We don't have gladiators who are still in coliseums killing each other for our entertainment. This is our version of it today in the Super Bowl, correct? Right? But there is a chance that there could be a bunch of coliseums sitting around the United States that are not being used for whatever purpose they are being used for today. And they could someday tell stories about these guys who put on these helmets and they and they fought as great gladiators in this stadium and they chased after this skin of pig that was on the field and it would not make much sen- it might not make much sense to them, correct? Right? So we got to consider the culture that we live in and the culture that the Bible was written in. And it's in kind of the context of that I want to have our conversation this morning. We're going to look at a verse that is not in the Bible that many of us hope was in the Bible. Be honest with me now if you thought that this verse was in the Bible. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Anybody think that that was actually in the Bible? No? None of you? Okay. Some of you are being honest, right? We'll talk about lying next week. Um, No. Uh, So cleanliness is next to godliness. It's in the book of 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. We use it all the time in our household with our 3 and our 5-year-old. Say, we clean it up, all right? You gotta clean, you gotta keep clean, you gotta take a bath, you gotta take a shower, you gotta clean up your room, you gotta clean up the mess you made in the kitchen. Cleanliness is next to godliness. It's not in the Bible, it's nowhere in the Bible. Uh, the phrase became famous actually in 1788 by a man named John Wesley. John Wesley, um, 
was from Europe, primarily. Uh, he did his studying in Oxford, so he was a highly educated man. And Oxford came over to the United States um, and was one of the original founders of the Methodist movement. Little, little just fun tip for you, right? Anybody know where the word Methodist comes from? Anybody grow up Methodist? Any of you? Okay. Do you know where Methodist came from? Okay. Anybody? You know? How, how did it come up? That's right. That's fantastic. There was a method to being Christian that John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and George Whitfield, they all went to school together and they called themselves the Holy Club. No joke. They called themselves the Holy Club, right? And they had a method to how they would be Christian. Thus, the Methodist movement began. Just that, just a random fact of the day for you. But he was noticed as the Methodist founder. A great pastor um, who preached a ton of sermons. And in 1788, he preached a sermon called On Dress. On Dress. And it talked about um, attire and modesty and cleanliness in the Christian life. And in the middle of the sermon, I read this sermon. I like to read old sermons just for fun. Uh, I know you do too. So um, (laughs) at one point in the sermon... Uh, John Wesley's making a point and he says, because of course, cleanliness is next to godliness, right? And, and ever since that day, that has become a saying that people have said, and, and they, they have attributed oftentimes to the Bible and said, well, yeah, cleanliness is right. It's right next to godliness. Cleanliness is really, really important. Um, and it's not that cleanliness isn't important. In fact, what I want to do is just take a look at cleanliness in the Bible and see if there's any application to this statement. See if we can learn something from this statement, even though it's not in the Bible. See, um, I, I touched on this last year, or la- last week, I mean. Um, there's a lot of weird uh, stuff in the Old Testament, a lot of weird laws in the Old Testament. Anybody, be honest with me, anybody doesn't like really dealing with the Old Testament? Just be honest with me, right? It's, a, it's weird, right? And there's weird laws, and God seems like, I don't know, he's not real happy a lot, maybe. Um, and so the Old Testament might be a little hard for us. I touched on this last week when we were kind of summing up all the law and all the prophets, over 600 laws, and Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up all the law and the prophets. and really led me this week to back into the book of Leviticus where there is a ton of passages on cleanliness. You can check out more of this on the back of your bulletin this week. The the sections of Leviticus, kind of uh, 10, 11 through about 20, have some really weird... Really strange cleanliness laws. There's purification around childbirth. There is regulations about skin diseases. There are regulations about molds in there. Um, there is cleanliness from skin diseases and from um, different discharges. We're not going to get into that because there's children in the room. Um, there's cleanliness around food that's clean and unclean. If you have any Jewish friends, you would say is something that is kosher or not kosher comes out of these laws. And, and if you looked at them, you could think, man, this is kind of weird. This is kind of 
strange. There's all these laws about you can you can eat from a can you eat from a divided hoofed animal or not a divided hoofed animal? Um, a flying insect can you eat that or not? Most of us wouldn't want to, um, but whether or not we wanted to, could we do that? If we have a sore on our body, what does that mean? Do we need to go see Pastor Brian this week and he needs to check the sore out and see if you're going to be okay and you need to leave the camp for a while? Like it's very weird, right? It's in their culture and it's in their time, so we need to put some cultural, some cultural glasses on. But we need to understand that God was painting a picture in the Old Testament. And here is what he was painting a picture of. One of the pictures that God was painting of in the Old Testament was of clean and of unclean. And we see this throughout Scripture that God paints these beautiful pictures of clean and unclean, life and death, life and darkness. And so God is painting a picture for us which will someday be fulfilled. It will, it's foreshadowing the coming of Christ. It's foreshadowing the coming of Jesus. And so we don't need to just jump over these 600 laws because we don't understand the cultural context. What we need to do is learn what we can from them. And I think there's three things we can learn from them this morning. So clean in the Old Testament symbolized a couple things. Number one, it symbolized life. It symbolized life. Here's a passage out of that section in Leviticus. Leviticus 15, verse 31 says this. Let me get there. Uh, You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean. So they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them. So here's the picture. God is traveling with his people. They are encamped together and he is dwelling with them. He is tabernacling with them. Right? The word tabernacle actually means to dwell with. When Jesus comes in John 1, he says the word became flesh and dwelt among them. And what the word there is, is it's referring to that word tabernacle. He dwelt among them. He put himself in their neighborhood. He moved in, right? And so, so God is saying to his people, I'm moved in among you. I am clean. I am undefiled. And, and we have to live together. And if we don't live in a clean way, it's going to not bring life. It's going to bring death in two specific ways. One, there's just a health risk. I mean, put yourself in the culture, okay? You've got thousands, a couple thousand people uh, who are camping together. I don't know about you, but if I go camping with my kids, there is a lot of germs, and there's only two of them. So if you can imagine being encamped with people who do not have wet wipes, right? There's no such thing as wet wipes back then. They don't have paper towels. They don't have Lysol. They don't have none of that. So when one of them gets sick, right? Lots of them get sick. And they can't just go down to the doctor and pick some amoxicillin so they can get better. They could die from it, right? So part of this is God saying, listen, this is, there's some weird laws here about cleanliness. But listen, I'm trying to keep you alive. There's a whole bunch of you camping together. And there is, we're moving into the promised land. And I want you to be alive when we get there. I don't want you to die of dysentery on the way. That was an Oregon jail Trail joke, and some of you did not get it. Anybody play Oregon Trail back in the day? Anyway, lots of us died of dysentery. 
So there was a health um, aspect to this that God was saying, I want you to live. I want you to be healthy and get into the promised land. The, the second part of this life is that there's a bunch of laws in here about blood. So, so some of them have to do with um, uh, birthing, which is bloody, right? Um, if you've ever been in that room, there's a lot of stuff happening, right? And, um, and, and, and so um, there's a lot of blood involved. Some of this has to do with some of the animals they can and cannot eat. The animals typically that they cannot eat end up being carnivores. A lot of carnivores, they said, God said, don't eat the carnivores because they eat other people's blood. There's laws uh, about when somebody gets injured and there's a festering wound and there's blood and yuck and pus involved in this. And, and I know this is really wonderful stuff to talk about before lunch. Um, but, but here's the thing. God is painting a picture that there is life in blood. That when something dies, its blood stops circulating in its body. That, that life is represented in the lifeblood of animals, in the lifeblood of people. There's something special about blood. There's something that needs to be set apart about blood. There's special uh, moments of cleansing and washing that need to happen around blood. And really we begin to see here this foreshadowing because if you fast forward, you know what happens on a cross when someone sheds his blood. Do you understand what happens there? Right through the, through the through, through the shedding of his blood, we are forgiven of our sins. We are cleansed by his blood. It is through his blood shed that we now have life. So what God is saying to his people is he's saying, I want you to be fully alive. I want you to have life. And I want you to understand that part of just these simple cleanliness laws are about life and life to the fullest. Secondly, it symbolized separation. Separation. Um, says this, Leviticus 20. 23 and 24. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I'm going to drive out before you. Because they did all these things, I abhorred them. But I said to you, you will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance. A land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. See, part of what he's teaching is that his people are different. His people are set apart. The people that he dwells with, the people that he is moving out throughout all these other cultures with, they are different. They are set apart from all these cultures. And so when we look at these cleanliness laws, uh, uh, there's a good share of them that have to do with customs and behaviors that other cultures were willing to do that God says, no, you cannot do that. For example, here's a really extreme one. There was a God named Molech. Molech was a really, really, really bad God. And Molech often demanded that you would sacrifice your children to him to appease him. And so there's, there's a pile of laws in here, one specifically that I know of, that was about Molech and said, you must not sacrifice your children to Molech. And we think that is silly, right? They should have known better than that. Listen, listen. 
If everyone around in the culture of that day is sacrificing to all these other gods, this, this polytheistic understanding of life, that I have a God of fertility, that I have a, a God of the harvest, that I have a God of health, that I have uh, all these different gods and I have to appease all these gods. This was the norm that they lived in. So you and I, we think, oh, we're so much smarter than them. We wouldn't have, wouldn't have thought that way. No, we would have. And God would have said to the Israelites, if we were part of that group, He would have said, no, I'm going to set you apart. You're going to be different than them. They're going to look at you and say, those people are different. One of the main ways that He said He wanted them to be different, set apart, is by calling them to be monotheistic instead of polytheistic. Poly meaning many, right? Theistic meaning gods. So poly, many, many gods versus monotheistic, one God. The Israelites recited a Shema every single day. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Shall not have our gods before me. It's right in that Ten Commandment. And then it says this, I am the Lord your God, the one true God, right? One true God. It's not many gods. He's calling them to say, I am one true God. And so he's saying, you need to be set apart. You need to be different than the rest of culture. And, and as I was thinking about this, you know, the first one, life, I was like, yep, God wants me to be alive. He wants me to live beyond this life. It's really the heart of what we believe is that through Jesus' death on the cross, we are given life. This second one, it, it really hits me in a very practical way. I think we're still called to be separate from our culture. And this is hard. This is going to be hard for us, okay? Just stay with me. Don't, don't leave me right here, okay? Um, I've been having these conversations with my kids, especially Eli, because Eli's going to go to school this year. And so Eli is going to head into kindergarten, and he's excited, and he's scared, and he's got lots of questions uh, about it. And one of the things I've begun to realize is that um, it's a great school. It's a, it's a really great school. Love the teachers. You should come to the pie auction. I hear their auctioneer is going to be really fun. Um, and so, um, love it, support it, coach basketball, really involved in it. But um, I'll, just, I'll just say it straight up. There's not going to be a lot of Christians in my son's class. Right? He's going to be the minority, far and away. I mean, we're, we're trying to actually, like, triangulate and figure out with other parents who are in this church, like, when we should send our kids to school so we can, like, have more of them in the same class together. Like, we're trying to think about that and set that up properly. But the reality is, part of why we're doing that is we know that the pressure is going to be there. Maybe not right away, but that eventually they're going to be called to be like culture, and they're going to have to stand up to culture. And I've begun to have these weird conversations with Eli that I'm like, Hey, buddy, um, so daddy someday isn't going to let you, and already doesn't, let you watch whatever movie you want to watch. He doesn't let you use whatever language you want to use. He, he's not going to let you go to all the parties. You're not going to get to go to all the activities that all the other kids are going to go to. And I want you to know that it's, I do, I'm doing it because I love you. And I have a really clear sense of like, there's one really, 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 really important thing that I want. And that is for you to know and love Jesus. And there are things in this life that will take you away from that understanding. There are things in this life that are set against you knowing Jesus. And as your daddy, because I love you, I'm going to ask you to be different sometimes. 
I'm going to ask you to be different than the other kids, to, to swim against the stream of the culture that they are in. And I think we are still called to this as, 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 as a church body. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not a fun hater. If you know me, not a fun hater. Totally. Like, brew my own beer, okay? So, fun lover, okay? But, um, but I think it's really, really important that there's a differentiation. That people would knowingly look at you and say, that person is different from the rest of culture. They have a hope and a trust Um, And an excitement about life. They have a joy about them that is different than us. They don't participate in all the things that we participate in. Even though deep down inside we know that those are not all life-giving things. They're staying away from some of those dangerous areas of life. Right? And I think we are still called to be set apart. And, and part of why I think we're called to be set apart is that this is really, number three is kind of like a, it's almost like an A and a B. And then the big number three is holiness. Holiness. This is what it really all boils into. So several times throughout this um, section of scripture, Le- Leviticus 11, right at the beginning of it actually, and then several other times, Leviticus 11.45 says this, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. See, here's what holy means. Holy means without blemish. It means perfect. It means above all other things. It means, it means set apart. And God says, I am holy, not 95% holy, not 99.9% holy. I am a hundred percent holy and I call you into being holy with me. I dwell among you and I'm calling you into what I have to offer. Right? And that is why there's all these sacrifices for all of these violations. If you turn further into Leviticus, there's, there's all these offerings that have to happen based upon sins of the people. And, and there's, there's offerings about, like, if you do this certain thing, this is how many doves you need to bring. And if you, you don't even know that you did this thing, you've got to offer some things to make sure that it covers up what you didn't even know that you did wrong. Like, there's all of these concerns about atoning for sin, about paying for the sin, usually paid in the lifeblood of an animal. And so God is calling these people to a different life, a set-apart life, a holy life, a blameless life, a life of forgiveness, a life that says, I have done wrong and I need to be made right. And so here's the big idea. The big idea is this, clean it up. Clean it up. Um, My kiddos, um, we have this saying... And, and they know it by heart. And, and it happens when they spill food all over or um, when they say something bad to their mommy um, or when they have some sort of accident. I say to them, hey, when you make a mess, what do you do? And Eli and Ava both say, we clean it up, daddy. They have learned that phrase because <laughs> I have taught them that phrase. And it's a big phrase because it's going to teach them a lot about life. They're going to make mistakes and, right, um, they're going to have to clean them up. They're going to have to clean it up. 
And, and so here's where the tension is, because what I'm not doing is I'm not going to throw you a guilt trip this morning, right? I'm not going to heap guilt upon you. Maybe you're feeling a little uncomfortable, and I'm, I'm kind of okay with that because I felt uncomfortable writing this, okay? So um, this is not God helps those who help themselves. That was last week, right? This is not you can fix yourself. This is not that we're asking for perfect people to be a part of this family. It's that we're calling for us to be repentant sinners. That we know that we cannot put ourselves together, but God can. And because he can, he continued to make us more and more and more like him. And we need to respond in diligence. And another word that's used in the Old Testament a lot, we need to understand fear of the Lord. We need to understand how bad it really is. The greatest lie that I see the devil telling to our culture and our time today is that it's not your fault. And, and listen, atrocious things have happened to some of you and it wasn't your fault. But listen, in a bigger way, it is our fault. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you were Adam and you were Eve, you would have eaten off the fruit too. Do you know why I know that? Because we do it every day, right? I've said this before, I'll say it again. We don't even keep our own standards, let alone the standards of God, right? And so we walk around thinking, if we can just do a little better, if we can just be a little better, if we can just, if the humans can fix it and the humans can't fix it, The humans haven't fixed it. Enlightenment didn't fix it. It's just brought about another war. The more we build machines that can blow people up, the more we blow people up. That's how the world is working with people in charge. It's never going to fix itself. We're never going to fix ourselves. And Jesus can't. And Jesus will. And it's because of that that we can lean into this idea of, of cleaning it up, that we can join Jesus in that. That we can take holiness seriously. I don't think we take this serious enough. I think that we, we choose the world over Jesus a lot. I think, I think I choose the world over Jesus a lot. And I'm your pastor. Right? So like, can we take this serious church? Like, can we take it serious that God sent his one and only son to die on a cross for our sins? That's how serious he took it. Can we take it that serious too? And can we say we're going to try to live lives that are lives to the full? Can we understand that sometimes we're going to have to be set apart? And can we understand that we are clinging to God's holiness and we are asking and begging to be made holy more and more each day? I think we should seek out a clean life church. And, and I want to invite the worship team to come back up and lead us in one last song. Um, I, I landed the plane kind of on this verse last week. And it was um, James chapter 1, 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this. Look at or, after orphans and widows in their distress. We uh, touched on that last week. We said, help the helpless. It's not that God helps those who help themselves. It's that God helps the helpless. And we are called to help the helpless as well. So true religion is to look after the helpless, orphans and widows in distress. And the second half, I said it was another sermon. Guess what? Here it is. To keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And I don't know about you, but I take a shower every morning and um, it's just to get clean. 
And some of our souls need that. Not some, all of our souls need that. There's a a book written by a guy named Craig Rochelle called Soul Detox. (laughs) Right? Like detoxes are kind of all the fad nowadays. And, And he says basically like, our souls need to be cleaned. Our souls need a detox. They need to be, we need to be made fresh. And and if we would really be honest with each other, a lot of us in the room would say, I'm not where I want to be. Like I'm hurting and I'm broken. And to be honest with you, my, my sin, it feels dirty. See, um, Jesus doesn't just leave us hanging. Um, He gives us great examples of this. David. Everybody thinks David was awesome, right? King David. He was the man. Man after God's own heart, in fact, it says in, in the book of Acts. But you know what David also did? David also was an adulterer. David was a murderer. David was a liar. David probably wouldn't get on our elder board these days. And shortly after David commits this sin of adultery and then having the wife who he committed adultery with, her husband Uriah the Hittite, murdered in battle, he writes this beautiful psalm and and I want this to be our psalm this morning. And I want to give you some time to reflect. And, and I'm not going to just clean this up for us, okay? Like, I can't. Jesus can. But I want us to do some soul detox this morning. Quietly within your own heart, I want you to just engage with Jesus right now. Don't do religion. Do relationship. I want you to engage with Jesus and maybe think about some things that you need some soul detox on. Some things that are weighing on you. Some things that are making you dirty. Some things that maybe you need to confess to God that you need to be made clean. And then I want you to join with his words as well as the words to this song. We surrender to the Lord. Psalm 51. Would you just pray with me? This psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, God, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. Surely, God, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You, you've taught me wisdom in that secret place, so God, cleanse us with hyssop, and we will be clean. Wash us, and we will be whiter than snow. Let us hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from our sins and blot out our iniquity. Create in us, God, a pure heart. And renew a steadfast spirit within us. Do not cast from us your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us, but instead restore to us the joy of your salvation. And grant to me a willing spirit that will sustain us.